Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. London Plan, finally published after watering down by government. A social housing architect wins the prestigious MJ Long Prize. RIBA unearths lost lectures by women architects. And London-based design blog, Design sold to new owners. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My special guest this week is Hetty O'Brien, journalist and assistant opinion editor at The Guardian. Hetty, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. Nice, nice to be here. Our first story is a massive one, which although rumbling on for years, has now once again been covered widely across the built environment media, including by On London, which has really dived into the detail. It's all to do with the London plan, which has been finally been published and will come into force, shaping policy for all sorts of development, but especially housing across the capital. It's effectively a master development plan for London, a sort of high level document covering everything from jobs to homes to transport and the environment. But this particular version, drawn up by Sadiq Khan, who was elected mayor in 2016, has a very special story. And that is because despite being originally published in draft form more than four years ago, it has only just been formally adopted. This is because the government has spent years criticising the mayor's proposed London plan and demanding changes before it could be formally published. In effect, this stopped London's elected leader from being able to create development policies for much of his initial term in office, something which Khan says has done real harm to confidence in key industries and among Londoners, including the work to build more homes. Key criticism focused on the mayor's desire to create more new homes in outer London suburban settlements, while at the same time protecting the overall amount of industrial employment space within inner London. So policies like this would have meant that transforming an industrial area into entirely luxury housing, like for example what happened in Nine Elms, would have been much harder to achieve. And it would have also meant that sleepy suburban areas with good transport links may have also seen some beefier development. The criticism and the firm instruction to change course forced the mayor to scale back his ambitions from creating 64,500 new homes a year to delivering just 52,000 a year, just to get the government to allow the plan to be published. Described by some as a ministerial takeover of the plan, it also led to the mayor being criticised by, and you could say this is ironic, the government itself 
which will soon be seeking to deliver 93,500 homes in London a year, criticising the mayor for not being ambitious enough in his housing targets. Now, Hetty, what's this all about? Should we, be, should we be surprised it's taken this long for the London plan to be published? Or is this actually a bigger reflection of, sadly, how weak City Hall powers really are? I mean, I think it's a story that reflects so many more things than just the individual story itself. And I think the clue is really in the name. The Tories have a very different plan for the capital. Um, and I was reminded this morning when I was thinking about this story, about the historian David Edgerton, who says, he, I think he describes London as something like a cosmopolitan service enclave in a fallen industrial nation. And I think it really reflects the kind of how, this, how the Tories view this economically. But also, I think, um, the kind of sense of the, the fact that City Hall doesn't seem to have the same powers or it feels like its powers have been very much enfeebled. And this has its, you know, it's completely its own history as well. Um, we all know what happened with Thatcher when she um, won power and set her sights on the GLC. And she really saw the potential of urban councils to grow into power bases that could thwart the supremacy of Westminster. And so really it became a kind of battle between the national government and local government and in particular the GLC. I think her cabinet minister, Norman Tebbit, said something like um, the GLC was typical of a kind of modern divisive form of socialism that must be defeated. And that's quite literally what happened. Um, I think when, when it was abolished, he boasted that it was it marked the defeat of socialism. And obviously Sadiq Khan's plan was hardly socialist to begin with. I mean, it didn't, I don't think in its initial um, iteration, really even live up to the kind of housing need that London has at the moment. But in this watered down version, it feels like a real reflection of um, diverging political priorities and different views of what the city should be for and who the city should serve, really. Fantastic. I think you're, you're really diving into the deep politics which shapes architecture in our built environment. And that is exactly what we love to discuss on The London. But I mean, is it fair to say that this meddling by the government is it just about kind of protecting these conservative voting out of London boroughs from new housing? And also that would mean new voters, you know, new people moving there and voting there, while also simultaneously forcing all the development into inner London areas, which need to protect that precious employment space for key workers. Is this what it's all about? So, yeah, as you say, there's a kind of concentration of house building in lower income areas, such as um, I believe it's Tower Hamlets and Newham that are going to be having the kind of high, the expected to provide the most houses compared to richer boroughs like Kensington, Richmond, Chelsea, who will have to or which will have to provide fewer houses. And I think it was sort of fewer than 500 per year. But you will probably know more about the figures than I do. But um but yeah, it does feel like a kind of, um, there is that, I guess, a kind of electoral aspect to this in terms of where the Tory constituencies are. But I think one of the things that I was most interested in was the scrapping of protections for industrial land, which you mentioned. And, and the I guess the fact that, you know, it, I've speak, been speaking to people in Tower Hamlets recently who are really crying out for more spaces devoted to um, manufacturing and to, you know, spaces that local businesses can use um, and actually putting the burden on these on these places to provide all the housing seems to be a reflection of yeah both both the kind of electoral political tendencies of the Tory party but also a kind of devaluing of the the, the potential of London being a place where things are made and and where the the economic um I guess growth of London flows from not just kind of real estate value but also from making things and from producing things and I think that's what really has been watered down in this version of the plan which is to me a real shame 
it's it certainly seems that in places where local authorities for example barking where they're trying to keep industrial employment space while also allowing a kind of modicum of housing to be built alongside it it requires them to go in themselves and create the sort of multi-story industrial architecture or for them to to create the architecture where industry and housing are combined certainly it's a lot easier to just sell off to uh, industrial land and just say you can build anything you want here rather or you can build as much housing rather than have to say you can build housing but there has to be a timber workshop at the at the bottom and then that might impact your uh property prices on the units you can sell above it i mean is, is this is this about you know one side of the political argument just wanting to make things very very easy for the free market and those other side of the argument saying hey we need to build a sustainable city here i guess the side that is trying to make things easy for the free market is um is both ideological but also to some extent working within the boundaries of what already exists and the uk's economy being one that is largely where growth is based upon kind of you could say speculative speculative industries such as finance real estate and when it comes to building housing i mean you know if uh, i mean i think a good example of this is a kind of nine elms development that i think you mentioned when we were discussing this um this episode initially but but i think that's that's a kind of good good example of how i suppose the the tory party views the future the future of the, and the economy in a city like london and i think there's also a lack of a fundamental kind of lack of imagination about what a, this city could be and what cities could be in terms of um we we tend to, we almost have seemed to have sold ourselves the myth that you know we don't really make anything anymore and the idea of having factories in cities is a kind of crazy outdated one that automatically brings to mind visions of um victorian squalor and actually modern manufacturing and modern industry can be both um, productive and also environmentally sustainable and friendly. And I think that kind of forgets, gets forgotten in this idea of a city that, that actually it's a place where basically we just build houses and allow hotels and service industries and banks to basically, you know, create homes in the city. And I think that's, that's a real shame because it's kind of a, it's, it's just kind of an impo- impoverished view of what a city could be really. A big part of this story seems to be the mayor setting a target, uh, seemingly a large target, of 65,000 new homes a year, and then being told by the government's inspectors and certain London boroughs, outer London boroughs, um, that you can't, you won't be able to get this target. You won't be able to get this target without protecting the green belt, that you've got to push this target further and further down, told that this target's too ambitious. Um, but what's striking is actually, if you look at the broader history of these things, this target is tiny, really tiny, compared to the targets the Conservatives themselves used to set in the past. We have a clip here of Keith Joseph, who was Conservative Housing Minister, setting his government's target in 1963. The only answer is more houses. The governments are looking to increasing the productivity in the building industry and are basing all their plans during the following five years on reaching and maintaining a level of 400,000 houses a year. 400,000 a year. This is in the 1960s, okay? Less sophisticated machinery. Things like BIM software didn't exist. There wasn't the global supply chain uh, for materials. Perhaps there were other mental barriers that weren't in the way. And the Conservatives were promising a far, far bigger house-building programme than what Sadiq Khan was trying to suggest now so what's changed you know why are the tories today trying to build apparently you know less optimistic trying to build fewer homes than those of yesterday 
Oh, I think this is such an interesting contrast with the present and it's almost it's the capability to shock and to make us think actually this was not how the not how the Conservative Party always was, nor is it how we approach housing in this country. And I think I suppose there are kind of two things going on. There's the first is the way that housing has been transformed from, you know, places to live and um, and to just inhabit to places that uh, also serve a kind of function as people's pension pots, their children's inheritance and much, much more. Um, and so in the kind of transform- transformation of housing from a kind of from from a functional thing into into a financial thing, we've seen, I suppose, as a significant political contingent of people who will do just about everything to keep house prices high, which includes refusing to build more houses, um, particularly social rent houses. Um, but also, I guess it's the legacy of right to buy. And I think that was a really interesting moment in the history of the Conservative Party. And it's interesting, obviously, because Keith Joseph played quite a prominent role in, in Thatcher's government. But you could say that the Thatcher move towards right to buy was really a breaking with the kind of tradition of noblesse oblige. Um, I could probably never pronounce that correctly. Um, that that previously kind of defined some of the Tory party policies and so it wasn't just Keith Joseph it was also how Harold Macmillan before him who was so shocked by slum housing as a housing minister under Churchill's government that he committed to building I think it was sort of 300,000 houses a year which were both private and council and it's also the reason that kind of tradition that you had rich benefactors um, who felt they had a philanthropic duty to help the poor through building housing. Hence, you get people like Peabody, like Roundtree and like Guinness building some of the first kind of, um, I guess, proto um, housing estates that were prior to the actual formation of um, the London County Council. And obviously, that's not the ideal situation. You don't want just the, you know, where people live to be or social housing to be the kind of crumbs of that the rich give to the poor, but it's still much better than what we have now. I mean, Britain's stock of social housing has just kind of keeps declining. Well, it, relative to the number of people who actually need social housing, it, it keeps declining every year, it seems. I think that's really, really fascinating what you're saying, because what I'm hearing is that this was a moment when housing was at the top of the political agenda, and that was when change really happened. So... Are you, optimistic, are you optimistic that so like London, will it ever find itself again in the right position where it can deliver the affordable, sustainable housing and development that it really needs? I think, I mean, I guess it depends on what scale because in, I guess, one of the, you could say it was a benefit, but I would say it's probably in the scheme of things not, not a benefit. But one of the benefits of a city like London where property prices are so high is that it means that councils within that city can subsid- cross-subsidise the building of council housing by building private housing. And so this is obviously what happens with a lot of um, contemporary um, social housing projects that are getting built now, which is the the you basically sell off sell as part of the um, estate or complex that you're building private housing to finance the social rent housing um, but that's like a drop in the ocean compared to what is needed and it that's kind of I suppose I don't have a good metaphor for it but it feels like it's sort of people doing what they can within a situation that is so far from ideal um, so I think it would just need a complete wholesale political transformation of, of what currently exists and particularly with regards to the way that housing has become this kind of overheated financial asset. So, yeah, as I said, there are so many interests preventing that from happening and it would mean not just building more houses, but fundamentally changing the way that we approach houses through the kind of the type of economy that we have.
Is all this fight really evidence that the idea of a directly elected mayor who doesn't really have the powers to get anything done directly isn't really working? Should we change the GLA for something, say, closer to the old GLC model, which had more powers? Does the mayor simply need more power? Yeah, I mean, I guess that was that was a kind of completely different political age, but it would be lovely to think that... And one thing I find interesting about the GLC and I think about quite often is the way in which history, I mean, history never repeats itself exactly, but it feels like this, the the Conservative Party have such an interest in, I guess, preventing the kind of emergence of a radical political culture of the sort that might, you know, lead to huge house building projects in the in the capital city. Um, and and even now, with the kind of culture wars ongoing within the Conservative Party, there is a sense in which places like London are being cast as potential seats of kind of, um, I don't know, metropolitan liberalism and um, radical... F- I, f- I can't even think of the right word, but kind of radical political sentiment. And you that seems like a trope that continues to repeat itself. And I think so long as the right is winning with regards to that battle the idea of fundamentally transforming the capital city in such a way that mass house building projects of the type that are really needed would be a possibility, would would require a complete wholesale transformation of the political climate. And yes, so I guess the idea of having a kind of a mayor like Sadiq Khan only feels like it's going to go so far, partly because he just doesn't have the powers of his predecessors. So just looking in a little bit more detail of what could be described as one of the successes of the London plan, certainly from an architect's perspective, is that it includes a clause. And that clause suggests that architects should be retained on projects following planning approval to ensure that quality goes from start to finish. And what often happens in development is that an architect, a good architect, will go ahead and win planning permission for something. That's really that's a hard thing to do. Uh, and then having one planning permission, the site owner, the developer, uh, will have made a lot of money, in effect, because the value of the land will be a lot higher. But they'll be thinking how they can maximise their profits. And often what they'll do is they'll get in a cheaper, different architect to then go and build the thing. But obviously that different architect who's not putting as much time in because they're not charging as much doesn't necessarily do as good a job as what was originally intended. Uh, is this potentially good news for those people with um, an, an interest in stewarding high quality uh, built environment in London? Uh, or could there be some unintended consequences? Could potentially clients thinking they have to stick with the same architect all the way through might be scared to try a new talent and just go with more trusted hands? Yeah, I mean, I feel like you probably know more about this than I do. But from what I've read, it seems that a lot of people are kind of very keen on, you know, have said this will be really good if it means that it's smaller architectural practices that need the work are employed um, and, and I, I think nobody would really disagree with that I think it will also be interesting to see what that quality means when implemented and also what you know if this leads to kind of potentially more exciting visual decisions as well I mean over the past decade there's been this kind of very ubiquitous type of London um, building I guess the kind of London vernacular style kind of clean lines sober modernism biscuity colored bricks and it, it's not actually that bad but it's a bit bland and i think it'll be interesting to see if this kind of empowers slightly more um creative decisions in terms of the visual landscape um but also i think the key when it comes to quality is with so many things it depends upon um, what the building is being used 
for and but and who it's being used by and so you get these kind of um, shared ownership help to buy properties that are built in um, much worse quality than something you know flats crammed together and built without the same attention to detail or quality materials as something like um, I guess like the King's Cross estate which has obviously got really good materials but actually its use makes it effectively one of the biggest kind of outdoor shopping centres in the city so so yeah I think I'll be really interested to see how that actually plays out in practice. Our second item was announced in the Architects Journal, the AJ, and the Architectural Review, the AR, who together run the annual W Awards for Women in Architecture. It's the news that Alice Brownfield, Associate Director of Peter Barber Architects, has won the MJ Long Prize for Excellence in Practice. Named after inspirational architect, lecturer and writer Mary Jane MJ Long, somebody we discussed on our very first London, The award is open to UK-based female architects and judged on an overall body of work with an emphasis on a single project completed in the last 18 months. This year's award, chaired by AJ Technical Editor Fran Williams, was awarded to Brownfield for her work on Kiln Place in Camden. The project for Camden Council created 15 new homes, including seven council dwellings, on a series of small infill plots throughout an existing estate in Gospel Oak. It's an area which also features in Open City's North London Cycle Tour and in the upcoming Pocket London Printed Tour Guide, uh, which covers the same route. In in receiving her award, Brownfield said her practice believed that architecture had the power for social action. And she added that what the UK really needed right now was a central government-funded mass council housing programme. So, Hetty, what's this all about? Do awards like this, coming just two years after, say, Mikhail Riches won uh, the Sterling Prize for the Goldsmith Street Social Housing in Norwich, do awards like this suggest a wider shift in societal values around public housing? Well, I'd certainly like to think that they do. I mean, it's really refreshing when you see a project like this being receiving a kind of a, a prestigious award, and it often feels like architecture awards there's a kind of endlessly growing list of how many of them there are and a lot of them feel more like a kind of response to I guess the demand for media content and this kind of um, I, sp- I suppose a bit like P architecture what Kate, Kate Wagner's um, coinage um, but, it, but it feels a bit like a shell game with a lot of them um, and I think that there's a kind of issue with lionising, you know, individual architects rather than celebrating things that actually have more of a social purpose and are more socially responsible and maybe a more, um, yeah, I, I guess, speak to a certain set of kind of slightly more progressive values. And I think that's really, really nice when something like this happens. Um, and you mentioned Goldsmith Street in Norwich, which obviously won the Sterling Prize in 2019. Um and it was really interesting because that came a year after, I believe it was, after that award went to the Foster and Partners Bloomberg offices, which couldn't be more different in terms of both their, um, both how, how they looked, but also the kind of goal and purpose of both projects. One was um, a, a kind of social housing project and the other one was, a, um, I guess, a kind of monument to corporate wealth, although it had environmental credentials, which, yeah. So, so it's, I think it's really nice when this kind of thing happens and it would be nice to think that it kind of represents a broader shift in terms of what we're th- what, what building, how we're appraising buildings and what we think that they are, their role is and who they're for. Well, I can certainly imagine some new awards looking at societal value coming along soon. Um, but look, is a 
central government-funded mass council housing building program becoming more of a political reality as a result of awards like this? The cynical part of me probably says no, because I'm not sure that the that architecture awards maybe have as much political relevance or potential of kind of political change that 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 would that that would assume of them. Um, but I guess it suggests a kind of reappraisal of. Uh, and also potentially more of a um, uh, a sense in which these projects and, and social housing doesn't need to be something that's ugly or um, just for people who, you know, can't afford to buy their own homes and therefore can just sort of be crappily built, ugly and insensitive to the end users of, of, of that housing. It, it suggests that actually there's a sense, particularly by... Um, by among some architects that actually people deserve nice things and people even even people who can't afford to buy houses deserve some form of luxury and, and nice spaces in which to live and um, and I think that's it definitely suggests a kind of shift in terms of how we think about you know who deserves good design I suppose one of the really interesting things about the MJ Long Prize is um, this week it coincided uh, with the Venice Biennale uh, also announcing that it would award the Golden Lion, a very important prize, uh, posthumously to Lena Bobardi, uh, a great, great architect and very well known. Um, but in a way, if you look at something like the MJ Long Prize, maybe that sort of suggests a bit more of where the future direction of awards are. For example, recognising the excellent work of living practitioners, often on the front line of helping society, even if they aren't the big name above the door of the company where they work. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a question hanging over awarding prizes to people who are dead. It sort of raises the question of what those what what function they serve and actually would it not be more useful to award those prizes to people who are were still living but also aren't necessarily kind of household names who already have a lot of recognition attached to them and are doing really socially useful work i mean it's kind of pointless awarding prizes to people who are dead when actually those prizes could serve a far more progressive and socially useful purpose if they are awarded to underrecognized architects particularly when those architects are doing something with a broader social purpose that isn't simply building beautiful buildings that have that kind of wow factor, but actually have uh, enrich people's lives. And I think it was interesting when you when you think about the Goldsmith Street development that the architects d- described the wow factor as going and seeing people who live there. And I think that's fundamentally what buildings should be about, is the people who use them. And, and we should be sensitive to that in the way that we think about who we award those awards to should should we be perhaps a little bit optimistic that there's this whole new generation of architectural designers and they're seeing people like brownfield winning awards and potentially seeing civic public housing projects as a possible pinnacle of their future career yeah i mean it's interesting because i think for so long architects have probably felt like you know if you're doing something for a council then your your initial vision will be watered down and watered down and watered down and to the point where it's so far from the original idea that you, the original plan, that it kind of feels like a every and every every corner is being cut in terms of cost. That it that it I guess it kind of would put people off. And I, I know I mean my grandfather was an architect and worked um, initially on kind of social housing projects in the fifties, and then almost the arc of his career traced the devaluation of those projects and by the end of it by the sort of 1980s he just felt so demoralized by um by actually working on those kind of developments because there'd be so many drawn out 
meetings with with councils and representatives of of, of councils and that that would just basically be about cutting costs and that's not to say that the councils were at fault because obviously they were dealing with dwindling budgets but it is really nice to think that actually some pe- some architects might be looking at this and thinking that's actually something that I'd really like to work on and that it doesn't have to be ugly it doesn't have to be kind of completely utilitarian and um and insensitive to its surroundings and the people who live there it can actually be something that is beautiful and elevates the space and offers kind of I guess a yeah a really nice spaces to the people who are using those buildings our third story was covered by the AJ it's all about the RIBA publishing four audio lectures by leading female architects of the 20th century after rediscovering the recordings among the four million items in its archive the lectures all delivered at the RIBA headquarters in April 1986 saw Jane Drew Patricia Tyndale Elaine Demby and Rosemary Sternster chart the successes and challenges of their careers. Among them, Sternstert is possibly one of the most underappreciated of of the UK's great architects, having designed the grade two listed Alton East Estate and Central Hill in Crystal Palace. They're two landmark social housing estates, both currently in the sites of redevelopment. And in the case of Central Hill, it's also a place which features in Open City's South London Architecture Cycle Tour and Pocket London Tour Guide. Um, These audio lectures, published in time for International Women's Day on Monday, range from 9 to 25 minutes in length. Uh, They're available on SoundCloud, just like the Lundown, where you can also subscribe to the Lundown. Uh, But Hetty, what's this all about? I mean, is lost recordings a bit of a euphemism here? I mean, is this a bit uh, one of the classic things about an archive is that um, certain things get overlooked? And possibly in this case, uh, it was uh, some great female architects who just happened to have also been involved in designing public buildings and public housing. I mean, it's quite funny, the idea of something getting lost in an archive, because um, unless it's just a really, really badly designed archive where genuinely things get lost, the whole point is that you catalogue things. So it feels more like maybe these were undervalued or, um, or I guess, uh, neglected or ignored previously in the past. Um, and it does feel like, yes, in terms of thinking about the history, particularly of modernist architecture, it's really difficult to think of any household names that are, that are the women's names when it comes to the kind of buildings that were designed and the ones that we think about and it's a real shame to hear that um, Central Hill is in the sites of redevelopment because it feels like if that had been potentially designed by a man or at least had been kind of you know given more of a sense of this is a really important building and we need to save this that that wouldn't be on the cards so so yeah, I do think it's a it's a case of undervaluing rather than straightforwardly losing these recordings. I, th- I think it's very interesting that you say that because um, you know certainly if you look at the city centre of London, um, you know there is famous housing by male architects like for example the Barbican and for example the Brunswick Centre and these are listed uh, buildings. Um, but when it comes to those those less central boroughs, you know housing from pretty much the same era. Um, you know, it's just as valuable in terms of its design principles and in terms of the social role it plays. But it is it's much maligned, you know, to the point that it's is literally threatened uh with demolition. So like, you know, for example in Lambeth, you know, you have an amazing run of projects by the likes of Magda Boriecka, Rosemary Sternstert, uh, and Kate McIntosh. Uh, many of those buildings aren't listed at all. Uh and where they are listed, 
uh, even those legal protections themselves, you know, in some instances have been overlooked, uh, it said, uh, by contractors or even by the local authorities uh, could have done more to, uh, to protect them. Some some residents have argued. Um, I mean, Hetty, uh, what's going in? What's going on here? Is it that women architects weren't given the opportunities to make great buildings in the past? Or is it, in fact, that they were given opportunities to make great buildings, but that contemporary society has subsequently ignored those accomplishments i mean i don't i i think kind of quantitatively i'm not sure it, you know if it was that they weren't given the opportunities it certainly feels that there are so many great buildings that have just been undervalued and ignored i mean you know kate mcintosh's dawson heights is just one of the most fantastic buildings in south in southeast london and every time i go home to peckham i always well, I always am so happy when I see a, a sight of it from 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 the top of the, this particular hill um, near Peckham and looking over to Dawson Heights and when the light hits it, it's just absolutely majestic. Um, but yeah, for every Kate McIntosh, you get sort of loads of Erno Goldfingers and um, and Lebetkins and Hollenbees and they're all men and it's a shame. And I I don't I don't have the answer to whether or not it was just that women weren't given as many given as many opportunities. I suspect that was part of it. But it's also that there are lots of brilliant buildings designed by by women architects and those have just been completely undervalued. And we just yeah we just don't see them as being kind of as iconic when we think about the kind of aesthetic of modernism and. Um, and that's a real shame. Coming back to that topic about archives, I mean, you know, could architecture in London generally benefit from a revisit of its archives? You know, is there an opportunity here to reset the narrative when it comes to, for example, the legacy of public housing built during this golden age of what you could say is welfare state provision, an age which has suffered from a lot of really unfair criticism often leaving the residents themselves today quite marginalized yeah no i i definitely think so i mean it's interesting you know you look at the kind of blair years onwards and this kind of um and you know under blair and cameron this um yeah mal- I, I guess maligning and savaging of of social housing and council estates in particular um and i think the the video that or the the audio clip you played of keith joseph and his housing targets is like a brilliant example of how shocking the recent past can be to us in terms of how differently our attitudes were to housing and how much those have changed and that could be a really beneficial and productive um process i th- i think to actually remind people that that there were all these amazing kind of housing projects that were built and designed for 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 normal people not for kind of high net worth individuals and people who could afford to spend a million pounds on a house but for people who were just normal people and and, and needed somewhere to live and I think that's a really I wouldn't say it's a forgotten moment in history because obviously you do have a lot of books about modernism and but but I think that in terms of making that publicly accessible there could be a lot more work to be done to actually remind people of this and to show that the status quo of what we currently have is not how things necessarily need to be at all. Our fourth and final item relates to a story published in Dezine announcing Dezine's sale to Denmark's JP Politiken Media Group. Founded in 2006, Dezine, like BuzzFeed and Huffington Post, was an early internet-only publishing platform which has grown rapidly with the advance of online media consumption. The website, covering architecture, interiors and design, provides entirely free content without a paywall or registration barrier and is well known for its slick visuals and at times scary comment sections. 
Uh, but in, in the 15 years since it was founded, Dazine has yet to break into the field of investigative journalism, uh, for, as one thing. Uh, it's also sometimes criticised for its lack of an editorial agenda, both of which are arguably hard to accomplish with a free-to-read business model. It all opens up questions about the future of architectural publishing and how best to fund this. Hetty, what's this all about? I don't know anything about the Danish media group in particular, but I think my heart always sinks a bit when you hear of a smaller publisher that serves a particular audience being brought up by a massive publisher because what tends to follow is often a kind of emphasis on clicks and numbers and also um, very often redundancies follow as well. So I think it's probably in the scheme of things with the massive caveat that I haven't looked into the specific company in question. It maybe is a bit of a shame that this has happened Um and yeah, I think you mentioned that there was the, the zine has been criticised for its editorial agenda. Um, I think, yeah, it probably it would be really, really good to have a more critical mainstream architectural publication. I mean, I know that the Architects Gen- Journal does a, lo- a lot of really interesting stuff, but that feels like it's still very much speaking to people within the architecture world. I think Dazine actually was one of the few publications that actually really um, reached a more mainstream audience but probably it did so partly I think by focusing quite a lot on kind of clickable content and I guess when you don't have a paywall there's a tendency to kind of chase clicks and numbers and the number of visitors to your site per day or you know which which pieces have the most readers and that can lead to a driving down of quality because often it's not really about the pieces that you know you could publish a kind of crazy piece about a particular building that was being built on the sea that may never actually get built but you know loads of people will click on that and therefore it looks like the site is doing a lot of traffic but actually that's not a good long-term business model for really engaging people in the questions that matter about the built environment. Yeah, certainly with the kind of the current craze for crypto assets and anything kind of futuristic and internet-based, uh, you can see the excitement around like high click rates or sort of high engagement. But then obviously, having also lived through an era of Donald Trump being president of the United States, uh, there's that kind of question of, you know, do we need journalism to serve a role of, of providing truth or questioning power and so on and so forth? I mean, obviously, you're a Guardian journalist and Guardian was famous for having this free model uh, and now has kind of come along a bit of a way and try- it's actually built a massive subscriber base of people who 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 pay for the excellent content it produces, excellent journalism it produces, sorry. Um, is the view that you know, people should, you know, you should put your money into good and essential writing. This is This is what's necessary. I think the view, and I speak for myself, not for The Guardian um, here, but I think the view, my view is that people will pay for what is really high quality work and they can tell, readers can tell when that work is high quality and when a lot of research has gone in and when, you know, when it's impactful because it actually takes the conversation further or shows you something that you previously didn't know or shows you a new way of looking at a subject that you hadn't previously thought of or shines a light on an underreported issue. All of those things are really valuable and I think are things that readers will pay for and will come back for. You know, you might not get the most, the biggest number of hits because it's not a piece about a, yeah, a kind of cryptocurrency bro building a online floating island that will never actually get built. But actually, the readers visiting that page probably won't be inclined to return to that, that particular website to actually pay for their, for their articles because they don't see them as having a kind of broader value, either socially or politically or otherwise. Obviously, as journalists, we have certain skill sets, but the things we produce uh, become 
financial commodities. You know, they are often owned uh, by much bigger media companies. So magazines, newspapers, blogs now um, uh, are things which are, uh, have become uh, big business. But, what, you know, does the actual journalism uh, within it, uh, does that potentially suffer uh, as a result of it, you know, is is especially when it comes to journalism to do with such a big area as like architecture, which relates to property and where there's a lot of money and a lot of vested interests and so on and so forth. Um, is this something that people should be concerned about? I mean, I think it's a really interesting tension for, I guess, what you could call the kind of trade press, which I suppose you could class Dazine as that in some senses in, in that its main readership will be people involved in architecture, the built environment, design things like this. Um, I started um, when I was, my first reporting job was on a magazine for, like it was a trade magazine. And so it was covering a particular industry and it was very much embedded within that industry because that's how you would get the kind of stories and know the audience that you were serving. But it meant that effectively at the end of the day, it was just a reflection of the interests of that industry. And I think you get that probably with, um, to some extent with a publication like Dazine, you know, with the kind of, I guess you could say it about, architectural awards as well they're a reflection of the particular prevailing or hegemonic interests of a particular industry and so it therefore becomes more contentious um, and difficult to really shed light on the negative aspects of that industry and to really criticize you know the things that need to change and I think it's interesting that you mentioned investigative journalism I mean I don't know what investigative architecture journalism would look like I suppose it would look more like the kind of digging into you know I guess the kind of various scandals and also the questions about who 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 buildings and who, who cities are being designed and built for and what are the vested interests at stake within that. And I would love for a publication like that to exist, but I'm aware that probably the paying readership for architecture and urbanism and design publications are the people who work within those industries and therefore those publications will always to some extent reflect the dominant in- interests of that of that business. Certainly on the topic of investigative journalism, I can tell you there is some fantastic articles and a big one coming up in the Architects Journal. So it's definitely worth uh, subscribing to that one uh, if you want to support support, uh, the sort of journalism uh, we really need. Hetty, it's been an immense pleasure to have you on The Lundown uh, this week. Uh, Where can our listeners um, find out a bit more about the articles you're writing? I'm on Twitter at Hetty, H-E-T-T-I-E, Veronica. Um, so yeah that's probably the best place fantastic it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show and I hope you can join us again soon in the future great thanks very much you've been listening to The Lundown a show bringing you the big stories in architecture and the built environment in London each week created by Open City if you want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed tonight we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal which has covered all these issues in depth and many more too You can tweet at The Lundown using the hashtag LNDDWN or at OpenCityLondon. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is a charity dedicated to making London and its architecture more open, accessible and equitable. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.